This is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment, a eulogy, a parting thought about a dying loved one. And this story comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. And the name of the piece, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems. But once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash. Mountains in whatever direction I looked. And awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed? still moves me these decades later. He told
told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form. On my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, Yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way, his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And today we have Steve Rosidiak's story entitled For Better or Worse. Originally published in Chicken Soup for the Soul, Married Life, which can be found and bought on Amazon.com. Stephen recounts the night he sat with his wife and opened up about a difficult subject, infertility. Here's the story. I'm sorry, was what I had wanted to say. Too bad I lacked the nerve to say it. Two little words, that's all they were. But if I had the courage to say them, they would only open the door to more words, many more. An inevitable conversation would result if my thoughts were given a voice. And to be honest, talking about it was something I'd been trying to avoid. And so we sat out on our deck in silence, watching the intermittent bursts of lightning in the distant nighttime skies. The muffled rumbles of thunder that followed gave fair warning of the coming storm. The symbolism suggested by its approach wasn't lost on me as I thought about all we'd been through lately, especially the infertility. I wondered if she thought about it as much as me, and if so, what was she thinking? A part of me wanted to know, but fearing what she might say, or worse yet, how she might react. I was curious enough to wonder, but cautious enough not to ask. In truth, my silence sustained my sense of security, but it was merely postponing the inevitable. I knew that sooner or later, she was going to want to talk about it. And when she does, my fragile defenses will most certainly crumble, especially if she becomes emotional. Should that happen, we're going to have another problem, perhaps a bigger one. I am not going to be able to comfort or console her. No reassuring words from me will be forthcoming. The truth is, they can't. And this is a shame because she deserves better than this. And maybe she deserves better than me. I blame infertility as the sole obstacle that's come between the way we've been living and the idyllic life that we'd planned. After marriage, we saved money and bought a house. Renovations followed, and so too did a new puppy. When the work was done, and our house had become our home, it was time to begin filling the freshly painted bedrooms with babies. But it didn't turn out that way. We did come close to achieving our goals, but without children, living that 1950s sitcom life that I'd envisioned while growing up watching reruns of shows such as Ozzie and Harriet, or Father Knows Best, just wasn't happening. In the end, even our puppy wasn't enough to provide me with that sense of family that TV dad Ozzie Nelson must have felt when he came home at the end of the day to Harriet, David, and Ricky. The storm was getting closer. I knew we should talk, but my fears demanded otherwise. They did, however, provoke an unexpected memory. I was at camp, a young scout, standing on the edge of the dock, waiting for the signal to enter the cold, dark, and frightening waters for my swimmer's test. Not being very good at camp aquatics, I knew that I would have to push aside my fears, take a deep breath, and jump in. 
So many years have passed since then, but once again, I found myself standing on the edge, knowing what I had to do, knowing that it was almost time to jump back into the frightening waters. A brilliant flash crossed the sky and was immediately followed by the sounds of rolling thunder and then silence. The air became still, the calm before the storm, another fitting metaphor. I closed my eyes, gathered my thoughts, and then, finally, allowed them a voice. Choking back my fears, I took a deep breath and jumped in. I began by saying how frustrated I'd become with everything having to do with infertility. I'd grown weary of living by the dictates of the calendar, thermometers, and early morning temperature taking, of charts and graphs that predetermine the optimum time and date to make a baby, and then our failures to do so. I was sick of doctor visits and waiting rooms. I wanted to be like any other dad, playing catch with his son, or the proud pop walking his daughter down the aisle on her wedding day. I had my fill of friends asking when we were going to start having kids, and family members wondering if a new niece or nephew, cousin, or grandchild would be making an appearance anytime soon. I was tired of wanting children, waiting for it to happen, and knowing it may never. I mentioned medical alternatives. I questioned God's wisdom. And then I went for broke. I asked her to tell me how she really felt about all this, without holding back, without sparing my feelings, without the sugarcoating. And then I was done. I exhaled and I shut up. She didn't say a word. I prayed for a flash of lightning, a clap of thunder, anything to break the silence. I blew it, and I knew it. I never should have said all that I had, and now I waited to suffer the consequences for being a horrible spouse. And then I remembered the one thing that I had wanted to say, but had forgotten to mention. This time, it didn't require taking a deep breath or any courage to say those two little words that I've been carrying around in my heart for far too long. I'm sorry. And then I added something that we both already knew. It's all my fault. And of course, it was. Whereas she was physically ready and able to become a participant in the adventures of parenting, apparently, I wasn't. And therein was my dilemma. If our failures to conceive a child caused her sadness, how could I be the supportive husband, the comforting partner that she might need and certainly ought to have, when after all, I was the cause of her unhappiness? when I was the reason that she has never received a card on Mother's Day. Her expression was disarming, comforting, reassuring. Her smile immediately told me what she was thinking, but I knew she was going to tell me anyway. 
Sometimes you can be so stupid, was what she said. The problem, she added, isn't yours and it isn't mine. It's ours. And no matter what happens, it happens to us, for better or worse. I knew she meant it too, for better or worse. Part of our wedding vows, suddenly they took on a whole new meaning, providing the comfort that I worried I couldn't give, but now I needed far more to receive. And that was it. I jumped into the frightening waters and survived, rescued by the person I most loved in the world, and nothing else, as it turned out, mattered more than that. The storm that had been slow in arriving suddenly dissipated, becoming little more than a gentle summer night's rain. It was impossible to foresee the future, no way of knowing if we would ever conceive a child. And yet, I felt a comforting reassurance in knowing that no matter what life held in store for us, we would face it together, as partners, as friends, and as man and wife, for better or worse. And great job on that, Faith, and thanks to Stephen Rosidiak for his candor and for his honesty, and that's what we do here on this show. We tell you the stories that you want to hear and need to hear. Again, no screaming and yelling on this show, uh, just stories from the heart. And this is a tough one for any man, for any woman. And it can ruin marriages. I've seen it happen, and we all know it. We've known people in our lives who've gone through this. Sex turned into a job, intimacy destroyed, blame well enough to go around everywhere. I jumped into the frightening waters and survived, rescued by the person I most loved in the world. And that's what happens when you open yourself up to someone you love. At least that's what can. Stephen Rossediak's story, and thanks to the folks in Chicken Soup for the Soul, and this came from Chicken Soup for the Soul Married Life, and thanks to them for this partnership. Stephen Rossediak's story, so many married couples suffering from this thing called infertility. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here on Our American Stories. Here he is telling the story of the tank duel during the Battle of the Bulge at Sanvie, Belgium. Today we're going to talk about an event that was described in an after-action battle report on December 18, 1944, where a U.S. light armored car engaged to destroy a German heavy tank in combat, which is something so unlikely that you might not even think it was true, except that there were multiple witnesses and an official army report. And while it really is an interesting and exciting story worth telling, it is also an interesting microcosm of the world-shattering events that were going on in the winter of 1944 and an interesting life lesson as well. 
But before we talk about this duel between armored vehicles, let's talk about the events that led up to it. The Germans launched one of their last major offensives of the Second World War on December 16, 1944. They were attacking a heavily forested section of Belgium called the Ardennes. It was lightly defended by the Allies because they believed that the terrain was so impassable that there couldn't be an offensive there. The goal was to drive all the way through to the Belgian port of Antwerp. That would split the Western Allies in half, isolate entire army groups, and, Hitler hoped, inflict such a defeat on the Western Allies that they would have to sue for peace, allowing him to concentrate on the war with the Soviet Union. It was a massive attack that included 206,000 troops, 1,200 tanks, and 4,000 artillery pieces. The goal was to use surprise and speed to move so quickly that the Allies would not be able to mount a defense or a counterattack. That required a very aggressive timetable where the German army needed to take certain towns that had crossroads necessary for moving those numbers of troops. One of those was the town of Bastogne, and the defense of Bastogne by the 101st Airborne is pretty well known, but another one that's not discussed nearly as much is the defense of the tiny belted town of Sanville. December 17th saw chaos in the tiny town of Sanvi. The German assault the night before had caught the Americans completely off guard. Thousands of American troops were in headlong retreat. Two entire regiments had been surrounded and forced to surrender. But the Americans knew the importance of the crossroads in Sanvi, and so they were desperately trying to throw up a defense, creating ad hoc units from the retreating troops and trying to bring up reinforcements from the 7th and 9th armored divisions through the traffic jam of retreating troops and destroyed vehicles. But on the other side, things were almost as bad. The Americans had held in the north, cutting off one of the major roads that the Germans had intended to use, and that meant that the entire 5th Panzer Army was stuck on one road. And on that road, the traffic jam was so bad that one of the German commanders, Field Marshal Modell, was standing in the road trying to direct traffic. And that's how things stood as the day ended on December 17th. The Americans were in a traffic jam, desperately trying to create a defense of the Saint-Vie crossroads, and the Germans were in a traffic jam, desperately trying to take Saint-Vie before the Americans could mount that defense. And that brings us to December 18th, the date of our duel between a U.S. M8 armored car and a much-feared Tiger tank in the high-stakes defense of the town of Saint-Vie. So let's talk about those two vehicles that met that day. The M8 armored car is a reconnaissance vehicle, in this case with Troop B of the 87th Cavalry Reconnaissance Squadron. The job of a reconnaissance squadron is to make and keep contact with the enemy so that you know the enemy's strength and intention. Their vehicles were built around speed and agility, not armor and armament. The M8, made by Ford, was lightly armed with a 37mm cannon. It's not enough to say hurt the front armor on a large tank, but it could take on an enemy reconnaissance vehicle or a soft vehicle like a truck or an artillery piece. The M8 was armored, but only enough to protect it from, say, machine gun fire, not a cannon like on a tank. Although the M8's off-road capability was disappointing, the M8 was very fast on roads and capable of maintaining speeds up to 55 miles per hour. On the other side of the battlefield, the Germans brought with them some of the most powerful armored fighting vehicles of the Second World War. Not only did they have the formidable Panzer IV and Panther medium tanks, but they brought along the masters of the battlefield, the mighty Tiger Tank. Made by the Hengel Corporation, a Tiger weighed in at more than 60 tons, more than eight times the weight of an M8. 
Its frontal armor was 120 millimeters thick, which was virtually invulnerable to the 37 millimeter cannon on an M8. And its own cannon was the mighty 88, an 8.8 centimeter gun meant to destroy the best armor that the Allies could bring to the battlefield. Against an 88, an M8 might as well have been armored with paper. The only weakness for a Tiger was the armor in the rear, because tanks are built to be attacked from the front, but even there a Tiger had 80 millimeters of armor, which meant that for an M8 to hurt a Tiger, it would essentially have to shoot into the back of the tank at point-blank range. But of course, that's exactly what happened on December 18th, witnessed by an infantry captain and recorded in an after-action report. According to the report, the M8 was concealed in a bush and was surprised when a Tiger tank rumbled by right in front of it. The commander realized that the crew of the Tiger tank had not seen his M8, and the Tiger was driving on a sunken road so that it wouldn't be able to maneuver. The commander realized an opportunity, so he rolled out his M8 to charge the rear of the Tiger tank, hoping to get his shot in before even being seen. Well, it didn't work out as easily as he had hoped. The commander of the Tiger tank spotted them as they approached, and so it became a desperate race, with the M8 racing to get close enough to use its tiny 37mm cannon and the commander of the Tiger tank desperately trying to traverse its massive turret so it could shoot at the M8. At just 25 yards, a mere 75 feet, the M8 fired three shots straight into the rear of the Tiger tank. The huge beast shuddered, rumbled to a stop, and exploded into flames, the crew abandoning the tank. And then, in my favorite bit of the after-action report, the witness mildly noted that, having just scored perhaps the most extraordinary kill in the entire history of armored warfare, the M8 returned to its position. Sure, it's an exciting story, but what does it really teach us? Well, I think one of the most interesting parts of the story is that this attack was not an act of desperation, it was an act of calculation. The sergeant commanding the M8 knew the strengths of his own vehicle, knew the weakness of his enemy, saw an opportunity, and took it. And isn't that a great life lesson? If you understand your strengths and recognize your opportunities, you can defeat even overwhelming odds. But it's also a great illustration of the plucky American defense of the town of Sanvi. Like the M8, the Americans in Sanvi were facing overwhelming odds in a chaotic situation, and yet they put up a defense greater than anyone might have imagined. The Germans expected that their overwhelming numbers would easily take Sanvi on December 18th, and yet the outnumbered Americans held out for an entire week. It wasn't until December 24th that they finally withdrew to new positions. By the time the Germans finally took the town, it was really just too late. While their offensive, better known as the Battle of the Bulge, would rage on for another month, in practice the Germans had no chance of achieving their goals after they lost the initiative in the first few days against determined defenses at places like Sanvi. In the end, the Germans lost more than 100,000 casualties in the battle, killed or captured, and virtually all the equipment they took was lost as well. The surprise offensive turned out to be an astounding victory for the Allies, maybe best illustrated by that time when the little M8 armored car defeated the Goliath of the battlefield on a lonely road in Belgium. And great job as always to Greg Hengler and special thanks to the history guy. If you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, the history guy colon history deserves to be remembered. And what terrific storytelling. And it's so true. This was not an act of desperation, but calculation. And always, American ingenuity and courage. I mean, it took guts to just leave a post. I mean, clearly they hadn't been seen. But to go track down a tiger tank? 
and try and take it down? Not only the most extraordinary kill in the history of armored warfare, but a sheer and pure example of how Americans seize initiative and take risks. This is Lee Habib, another great story from the History Guy, here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories, and today we bring you the story of Henny Jewelers, a fourth-generation family-owned jewelry shop with a heck of a story in Pittsburgh, PA. The story of Henny Jewelers began in 1887 by my great-grandfather, Rudolph Joseph Henny who was a watchmaker by trade, and he decided to start his own business. So he bought a building in the east end of Pittsburgh with a $5 down payment, and he and his wife moved upstairs and then operated the business down below, and there they serviced railroad pocket watches for the railroad right around the corner and began to sell jewelry, um, engagement rings, wedding bands, and did just about any type of service that could be done. He continued to operate that business into the early 1900s. His son, his only child, was born above the store in 1899. Rudolph Gerard Henny, or Jerry, was the next generation to come into the family business. And he carried that business through the Great Depression, which we actually have the original accounting ledger from the 1920s and 1930s. The Great Depression saw Henny Jewelers' sales drop 72% from 1926 to 1934. Despite the toll that the Great Depression took on the Hennies, they still managed to make it through with a little thriftiness and ingenuity. They were true entrepreneurs because back then, while sales were declining, they actually tripled their marketing budget. I think also being able to have the store fully paid for so they really didn't have rent. And at that time, uh, they still may have been living above the store, at least one of the generations was. Uh, so they were able to get through the Great Depression and, and carry on the business. Eventually, the business was passed on to my father so during the 1960s, the area where the store was located in the east end of Pittsburgh, they did some urban development that changed things, which significantly uh, declined the commercial viability of the area. And we saw crime go up. And my dad finally in the 1970s, 1978, decided to move the store. It was a very difficult move because 
They had been in the previous location for 91 years. It was the store where my grandfather, his father, was actually born, and it was a real change, uh, a real risk for him. But it turned out to be uh, a great move, and he continued to operate that uh, to the 1990s. I came in the business in 1992. My dad was very sincere when he mentioned to me about the opportunity to come into the business. There was no pressure. That he really felt it was a business that he enjoyed, but every one of us should choose something that we really enjoy and love. I had my own desire to come into the business. I saw my dad, uh, I saw what he got to do. I started working in the business when I was 12 and I would come in and run the vacuum and clean toilets and wrap packages. We used to actually make our own bows in the basement. There was a little machine that you would twist these bows up and I, I would sit there for hours and make bows. And, you know, frankly, uh, my dad is one of my heroes and if I could be like him, that would be a, a very successful life. Uh, so I had a desire to come in and do what he did. When I joined the business, we were doing less than 2% bridal engagement rings and wedding bands, and now it accounts for about 35% of our business. And frankly, it's some of the most exciting things that we get to do. It's really fun for me to get to meet these young couples who are planning the next stage of life, planning to get engaged and then get married. And some of them I've gotten to see through it. Now in my 26 years in the business, I now get to see uh, the children who are graduating from high school and college when I sold the original engagement ring and wedding band years ago. My Christian faith is uh, very important to me. This goes all the way back to my great-grandfather. In fact, right now on the credenza behind me is a little trowel that was given to my great-grandfather in recognition of his help to lay the cornerstone in the new church that was built down the street, Sacred Heart Catholic Church, which coincidentally is uh, where my sister was married and where my grandparents, they were the very first couple married in that church. And faith has played an important part in how we operate the business and what we do here. It was discouraging to see young couples getting engaged and getting married and, and seeing the love that they have for each other and then encountering them five or seven or ten years later when they're coming back to sell the engagement ring and wedding bands because things didn't work out uh, so well. Marriage and relationships can be challenging and sometimes people don't prepare uh, as well as they might need to. As my dad said often, uh, he and my mother counsel young couples through their church as they prepare for marriage and he was getting the impression that many of the young couples today were more interested in preparing for the wedding ceremony than for the relationship. And so we developed a program we call the To Have and To Hold program where we give a financial incentive to couples to seek pre-marriage counseling through their synagogue, their church, through any type of uh, counselor. And we will give them a discount on their wedding bands if they show us that they have received pre-marriage counseling. In addition to that, we do give out a book to every couple who comes in to look at an engagement ring. It is uh, written by Gary Chapman who is pretty famous for a book he wrote called The Five Love Languages. And this book is The Things I Wish I Knew Before I Got Married. And it's a great practical guide to help prepare young couples for getting married. And we have given it to thousands of couples now. 
and some of them have come back and told us what an impact it's had and how helpful it was. I know that many have taken it and read it and given it to their friends to read as they prepare for marriage. I generally tell people that I have never had an innovative thought, that I'm really good at paying attention to what other people do and picking out what uh, has been successful in trying to emulate it, uh, maybe tweak it. Uh, but that was one that we did come up with on our own through a leaders collaborative that I went through about 11 years ago. And at the end of this leaders collaborative, they asked everyone to come up with a breakthrough goal where they in their position, wherever they are, could have an impact on the world. And I thought to myself, what in the world is a, a little dinky retail jeweler going to do to have an impact on the world? How can I really impact our community? How can a jewelry store really do something that would have a meaningful impact? At that exact time, a very close friend of mine from college um, was going through a real challenge in his marriage. And that's what gave me the inspiration to see if there was a way that we could use our unique position uh, in dealing with couples as they're preparing for marriage to help them better prepare for marriage. Because it is neat, when you are selling an engagement ring, you tend to hear their story. You get connected to these couples and you get to know them in a way that most people in a retail environment don't get to know people. And it, we felt that through that, we might be able to speak into their lives and give them some resources that could be beneficial and helpful. Uh, and so that's our desire, our hope, is that there are marriages that are slightly better than they would have been if they hadn't read the book or done the pre-marriage counseling and maybe we're really even making an impact that there are marriages that are saved that wouldn't have been because of the resources that we've given them. I have four boys, the oldest is 16 down to 10 and they have all worked in the business in minor ways and uh, one of them has come in and actually uh, gets behind the sales counter and is really quite good at it. We will see if any of them do choose to come in the business. Just like my father said to me, I intend to say to them that it is an opportunity, a means to make a living and provide for your family if you're interested. It's frankly one that I enjoy tremendously, uh, but there is no obligation to come into this business. There's no tradition that needs to be carried on and they should pursue their dreams and do whatever uh, they feel called to and to do something that they really enjoy. That's certainly one of the Things that I, I feel strongly about, and I talk to our team, we have a, a staff of about 30 here, that we spend too much time at work. In fact, we oftentimes spend more time at work than we do with our families. So we should find something that we really enjoy. And I like to say, you should enjoy what you do, you should uh, like what you do 60 to 80% of the time. I'm well aware that there are bad days and not all things go smoothly and easily. There are times that you're not gonna love what happened that day. But for the most part, you should be excited to go to work and enjoy what you're doing. And thanks to Robbie for his work on that piece. And by the way, Robbie and his fiance, well, they're about to get married. And they went to Henny's to buy their wedding bands. And John looked after them. He sat down with them. He walked them through their options. He even had her ring cleaned and resized. He didn't have to do that. It's just what he does. And by the way, if you have a story about a local-owned business, send it to us at ouramericannetwork.org because these business owners, they're the lifeblood of a town. I mean, imagine he said he had 30 on staff, and 30 on staff means he's probably taking care of 100-plus people if you count their families, spouses, kids, etc. 
And this is what small business owners do. They're the lifeblood of a town. And it's very much what Tocqueville observed about this country, the French social scientist who came here in the 19th century. And what he observed was, well, something unique to America. All these associations, all these churches, all these small businesses, Americans just gathered together and solving problems and taking care of business. Indeed, he believed that the lifeblood of a democracy, the lifeblood of a democracy, were these small associations. And so thanks to John Henney for doing all the things he does of family serving Pittsburgh for many, many, many decades. John Henney's story, his family's story, a Pittsburgh story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this next story, well, it's close to home. And by the way, the best stories that we all have are right near us, folks, in our neighborhood, in our families, in our churches, in our businesses. And here at Our American Stories, we've gotten to know one of our workers, an affiliate sales guy from Alabama, and a great guy, a great family. Well, he shared his story with me, and I was just... Well, it wasn't just me. It was everybody in the room listening. It was as if we were hearing a movie being told, a great movie, a compelling movie. It was a heck of a story. And so we asked him to tell it. And so without further ado, this is a story about everything, folks. Love, hate, family, and redemption. Um, I I had a pattern in my life of... um uh, w- with girls, um, putting me in the friend zone. Um, and one of the, uh, the, the very first girl that ever put me in the friend zone, I remember was in eighth grade and I was in Mr. Dunn science class. And, um, you know, I remember seeing her, um, as it was yesterday. And I, I remember leaning over to my friend Ryan and saying, who's that? And, um, neither of us knew who she was. And I, um, developed the courage to ask her to eighth grade graduation dance. And I guess what I mean by develop the courage, I asked one of her friends to ask her if she would go to the eighth grade graduation dance with me. And, and she said, yes, after that, I, um, you know, told her how much I liked her, wanted to be with her, professed my, you know, undying love for her. And, um, she put me in the friend zone and that, and that would be a pattern that we go on for, for the kind of, uh, the long haul. Um, you know, looking back at my childhood, um, there's a, a couple key, key moments that really, um, you know, stick out to me, you know, as far as I can remember, you know, my mom and my dad never really being together. Like that's never a memory that I can remember them actually being together, being married. But, um, I do remember as it got to be about my first grade year, my mother joined the army. Um, uh, she would kind of bounced around from job to job and couldn't find anything solid. And she really wanted to do something. Uh, to support us, um, and and I have a, a brother, um, Brad, who is um, he's two years older than me, but we have different dads. She um, eventually got stationed in Germany, and that launched into a giant custody battle. Uh, my dad was a very responsible, hardworking, structured individual, and the obvious best place for me would have been with my father. But um, the court's tendency is to always 
place the child with the mother unless there's just a an absolute, you know, crazy circumstance that would, would lead them to do otherwise. But at that point, I was going to be with my dad, and um, my mom um, had me go out to lunch right before, really, they were going to make their decision, and we had um, a lunch with my brother, and she basically said, well, you don't want to leave your brother, do you? And you know, there's castles in Germany and, and basically said all the things to the, you, you'd want to tell a kid to make them want to go that way. And I just remember the biggest feeling having is that I didn't want to leave my brother, um, didn't want to leave my brother in that environment without me to be there with him. And I was, <clears throat> I think seven years old at that time. And, um, I went back and told the judge that I didn't want to go with my dad, as I had said previously, that I, that I wanted to go with my mom. And, and that was ended up being the ruling after all the time and money and everything that was spent on that custody battle. Um, and I remember leaving the courthouse that day at seven years old, six years old, whatever it was. And um, my dad looking down at me as we waited for the, the light to turn across the road said, you know, I'm very disappointed in you. And that kind of set a pattern really for the rest of my life with my father that I uh, was kind of a, a, a disappointment. Um, and then when we moved to Germany, uh, my mom was still uh, with this abusive guy. He's the one that convinced her to join the army. Um, and when we moved to Germany, um, we lived in what's called the economy. So we didn't live on base. We lived um, in an apartment above a pub and the pub was called Klaus's Pub. And um, my mom and, and her husband, Dave, would drink every night, um, and they would fight every night, and sometimes it would become abusive, and sometimes the screaming and the um, all those things got to be so bad, uh, my brother and I would always wonder um, if, if it was going to be us next, and, and fortunately, um, we were never, um, you know, physically abused, um, but, you know, I remember wanting to protect my mom, but only being you know, eight years old and, and small and having this desire to protect my mom and inability to do so. And it kind of developed feelings of cowardice um, that I wasn't able, you know, to protect my mom. Um, that all came to an end when uh, we started going to church. Um, and, uh, well, she, she left Dave. We moved on base. We started going to church, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and on Wednesdays. And every time the doors were open, we got involved and um, really began to experience um a sense of belonging and that went on for about a year um, and there was no drinking and it was like this stability in our lives it was like the calm and the storm of my life as I look back on it um, I remember coming home from school one day um, it was one of my last days of fourth grade and I came home and um, my mom had been you know free from drinking for a year free from partying our life was you know so much better I mean I came home and there was a beer sitting on the end table beside the couch and I looked at the beer and I looked at my mom and I knew that we were going back into that lifestyle um, and that all that peace and calm was over. I, I was old enough to equate beer with pain um, and you know my mom drinking beer and alcohol with pain and suffering for my brother and I and instability and and I remember being fueled and filled with with hatred and anger uh, towards my mother and I remember screaming at her and telling her that I hated her and that I wanted nothing to do with her and that I wanted to to move back, um, you know, to the States and I wanted to move in with my dad. Then um, when I moved in with my dad, I used to go to church with my friend Blair and his mom. And we would go to church and it would be fun and it would be fine. But then we'd get in the car and his mom would gossip about everybody in the church all the way home. And then she would pick us up and she actually gave us a ride to school on the days that the weather was bad. 
And she would just gossip about people in the church the whole way to school and the whole way back. And I'm like, you people are ridiculous. And so what I did is I took a few Christians and I labeled all Christians as these few, right? And so my mind, I had this core belief that all Christians were these gossipy, judgmental um, people. And so I hated them. And when we come back, we continue with this really raw and really real story. And it's Brian Dawson's story here on Our American Stories. back here at Our American Stories, and we continue this remarkable story, again, one that comes close to home, as close as can be, right here on our own staff. Let's continue with Brian Dawson's story. Um, that summer, I went back. So my mom moved back from Germany, and she went to Colorado Springs. So I, I went and spent a summer with my mom in Colorado. Well, my brother was two years older than me, and he had friends that were you know, drinking beer and drinking liquor and going camping and smoking pot and doing all that kind of stuff. And I went out there and I'd never been exposed to any of that stuff personally, obviously seeing my mom drinking and things like that, but never personally. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, drinking a beer and then, you know, trying, um, liquor and the, the, the first, first liquor I ever tasted was hot damn 100. And, um, I was the little brother of not only my big brother, but that whole group. And I fit in, and I and and the more I drank, the more I fit in, and the more I drank, the more comfortable I was in my own skin. You know, they call it liquid courage, but it was so much more than liquid courage for me. It was liquid. I can actually deal with life. Um, everything in my life, I've always been very intense and very um, all in whatever it was that I was doing. And and I began to drink, you know, heavily. I was drinking tequila, whiskey, um, hot damn that whole summer, and. Um, you know, the following summer I went back to Colorado and I started to smoke pot. And as I smoked pot, um, it was the same thing. You know, I, I just enjoyed not being who I guess I thought I was. You know, I, I eventually made it when I was 16 years old, I got my driver's license. I made a fake ID on a computer and, um, I got to the point where I could go and buy liquor and then I became very popular for that reason. So there was a lot of it was fitting in and, and all of those things And I, I would go and I was able to, you know, buy liquor for these parties, which made me like the coolest person, you know, in the party. And, you know, I would drink to the point of blacking out once or twice a week. And this is as a 16 year old. And meanwhile, I was, you know, working a job at, um, Dylan's, which is a, a Kroger store and, uh, playing football, playing baseball and, and somewhat maintaining my grades. I went from a straight A student to probably about a C student. Um, and I just, I stopped caring about school, which is interesting because up to that point when I started, you know, drinking and, and doing drugs, all I cared about was school. I, I got straight A's. I scored off the charts on all these tests, the standardized tests. And, um, I didn't care about school anymore. All I cared about was the social aspect, the partying, the girls, um, and, and just, and, and being wasted basically. 
Um, the summer between my junior and senior year, I went out to Colorado and my brother was um, a driver for a, I wouldn't say notorious, but a pretty big time drug dealer um, in Colorado Springs. Uh, his name was Casey and um, my brother had a driver's license and a nice truck. So Casey would just, you know, have him drive him around and, you know, they'd be dropping, you know, mostly pot, but, you know, whatever around. And the craziest things would happen, man. So I spent the whole summer riding around with them, you know, just seeing him be this this alpha male that everyone looked up to and everyone respected. And he had money and he had girls and he had all these things. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. So I went back to uh, Kansas that summer. And, um, and here's the thing. Up to that point, I was excelling in football. And I did really well in baseball, too. But um, I excelled in football. And um, we had a great football team that year. And I was really coming into my own as a, a defensive end and, and, and a tight end on offense. And um, we were expected to, to do really, really well that year. And I was so torn between really wanting to, to pour myself into football or pour myself into this party life. And um, I had tried cocaine when I was out there. So I was, I was really starting to do more serious drugs as I'm going into my senior year. And I started my senior year and I got about two weeks into it. And I snuck out of the house and I went and tried ecstasy with some of my friends and a couple of the guys were actually um, football players on the team. And um, I remember trying to sneak back in and I got caught. And he told me that I had to quit football and go to rehab or I could quit football and go to, to Colorado, but I wasn't gonna continue playing football. This is really when the resentment with my dad hit its peak. Um, and then kind of to give the narrative of my dad this whole time, again, him not being an emotional guy who, you know, says, hey, what's going on, Brian? Hey, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Why are you doing this? It's, hey, I won't tolerate it. Not in this house. You ain't going to do that. Not my son. Those were kind of his ways of parenting was putting his foot down and yelling. Um, and, and again, you know, he didn't have a dad to, to teach him. So he, you know, he's a wonderful provider. He was at all my baseball games, all my football games, all my practices. Um, he got up at 430 in the morning and went to work every day to make sure we had a house and things like that. So, um, I decided to quit football and move back to Colorado with my mom. And what that basically meant is I was on my own and I just started partying full blown. And I started working for Casey and started selling weed and, um, got involved in that lifestyle. And then I started doing cocaine on a pretty regular basis. And as I did cocaine, I realized, Hey man, I can't pay for cocaine selling weed. So I started selling cocaine and I just had this knack and this ability to, um, rise to the top in these, in these, I guess, you know, drug dealer ladders, uh, of, of influence. Um, I just had a knack for, for that life. And, um, so I started selling a little bit of Coke and next, you know, I was selling a lot of Coke and I was doing a lot of Coke and it got to the point, it was so bad. I would have to take Xanax to go to sleep. And then I would wake up the next day and really the next evening at like four or five in the evening, I'd wake up, I'd blow my nose and snot and cocaine and blood would come out. My nose would just be bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. As soon as it would start to kind of slow down a little bit, I would do another line and start drinking. And then that was what I did. Um, and it got so bad to where I couldn't even like breathe out of my nose anymore. Uh, my friend tried to introduce me to crack and, um, I'm like, this isn't for me. Um, so then, uh, he, um, he had me try, um, crystal meth. And that was it. And once I did crystal meth, it was, um, there was no having to take Xanax to go to sleep. There was no drinking whiskey to mellow out. It was just, it was wide open. Um, and already at this point, when I started doing meth, I already had, um, my first felony, uh, arrest. Um, I was arrested with a half ounce of cocaine and, um, had bonded out and got probation and all those things. And, 
didn't slow me down. I, I continued to use drugs, continued to party, didn't go to my probation appointments, didn't do any of those things. And, um, I got to a point where I was very well known in Colorado Springs, um, for my ability to sell drugs and do a number of other things. And I remember getting a phone call from a girl named Camille and she said, um, I've got some pretty serious guys that I know, um, that want to talk to you about, you know, kind of you partnering with them or working with them. And so I came to her, her apartment and I walked into her apartment. I remember it, it was, um, kind of an uneasy feeling and, um, there was, um, some very mean looking, um, dark, uh, nefarious looking, uh, individuals that were, uh, Hispanic guys, Mexican guys, and they had handkerchiefs on over their faces. And, um, but they were in suits. It was weird. And I'm like, well, I'm either going to get killed or this is going to go really well. And, um, you know, they sat down and just talked to me and asked me a bunch of questions and asked me what I could do for them. And I think they were kind of new to coming into Colorado Springs to do what they, it was that they were wanting to do and they needed somebody to help them. So, um, they asked me to do that and, and I did that. And, uh, not long after that, I ended up getting in a high speed chase with the cops and ran and I had a briefcase with meth and a pistol got pulled over with that, got arrested, um, spent four and a half months in jail, county jail on that, got probation again, got out, went right back to it. Um, and by that time, um, a lot of my connections had either gone back to Mexico or had been arrested as well. And I got into, um, basically, I mean, I guess what it looked like was we would steal four wheelers and, uh, motorcycles and things like that and give them to Mexicans that were bringing them back across the border into Mexico. And then they would pay us in drugs. I was supposedly the, the ringleader of that whole thing. I don't know how true that was, but that's the way it was in the in the cops' eyes. And um, they busted a house that had some of those motorcycles in them. And um, they um, pressured the guy who was there. And, and he told on me and said, you know, it was me. I was the one that was doing this. I was running all these rings. So um, he and a bunch of other people had told the cops that I was responsible for, you know, all this crime that was going on. And um, I eventually got arrested. And I did another four months in county jail uh, and ended up bonding out after those four months. And in that time, I got my discovery and it said that, you know, who had told on me. Um, I was out um, driving around up to no good. I'd been up for four days. Um, we drove by the guy's house who told on me, who was the main informant in the case. And um, the guy I was with kept pumping me up. Oh, no, we have to go in there. You know, we can't let him, you know, just let him tell on you and you not doing anything. And so we went, you know, went up to the front door, knocked on the door, and he opened the door and um, walked in the house and asked him why he told on me. And he said, you know, told me, well, I didn't tell on you, Brian, I would never tell on you. And uh, I knew that he had, he was the informant in my case. So um, I began to, to beat him up really, really bad. And um, the guy I was with hit him in the head with a, a blunt force object. It was called a blackjack and it cracked his head open. And I thought he was going to die. So, you know, we... Um, we grabbed a few objects out of his house and we left. And by the time I got back to my house, um, I ended up getting arrested and charged with attempted murder, uh, aggravated robbery and extortion. And on top of all that, this was a, a guy who was state's evidence. So he was an informant that I did all these things to. So that aggravated it. And my goodness, what a story. And when we come back, you won't believe where it turns and where it goes. Brian Dawson's story, one of our staffers here at Our American Stories. More after these messages. 
return to Brian Dawson's story here on Our American Stories. And let's pick up where we last left off. I was, I was on the run. Uh, I bonded out again. And uh, I was out on like, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of bonds. And I was supposed to go to a court date. And I ended up not going to that court date. So I became a fugitive. And um, shortly after that, I became one of Colorado Springs' most wanted criminals, uh, most wanted fugitives. And it was intense. I mean, they were um, raiding houses. They were setting up perimeters all throughout Colorado Springs. As I don't know if you've ever seen them, like they basically have roads blocked off and they're showing pictures of me to every car that stops and goes through there. Um, if you ever follow Dog the Bounty Hunter, um, Dog the Bounty Hunter did most of his shows in Colorado Springs. Some in Hawaii, but most of them were in Colorado Springs. And Dog the Bounty Hunter was on a 72-hour, 72 72-fugitive 72 sweep when I was on the run. And he said he wasn't going to go after me because I was supposedly, you know, too threatening or, or menacing or whatever for him to go after me. Um, so it got, it became very real. And um, there was a couple near misses where they, they almost had me and I was able to escape from them. And then um, they finally caught me and I was in my safe, I guess you call it a safe house. Um, it was a third story apartment in Colorado Springs and they finally closed in on me and I remember sitting in the apartment that day I was watching the Chappelle show it was my last day out July 19th 2007 I'm watching the Chappelle show cooking bratwurst in this apartment and I look out the window and I'm on the third story and I see the front end of a cop car and I know that it's a cop car and I knew that was it I just knew I knew um okay well this is it and um there wasn't much in the apartment but there was a recliner that was wider than the window was so I'd taken a uh, nylon rope, a rappelling rope, and I tied it to the bottom of the recliner. Um, and I hear the door pounding. Carter Springs police open up, and they're kicking in doors, making their way down to me. So I kick out the window and wrap my, my hand around the rope, and I jump out the window. And the recliner sticks and wedges right in the window just like I wanted it to. And, and as I'm hanging there around both sides of this apartment building, these police come flooding and there's 40 or 50 cops made up of El Paso County Sheriff's deputies, Colorado Springs Police Department. They come pouring around the side with their guns pulled and drawn on me. You know, get on the ground, get on the ground, get the F on the ground. And I'm like, I don't know where else I'm gonna go. And I look up and there's cops, you know, cops above me, cops below me. So um, I pulled up a little bit on the rope, unwrapped the rope with my hand and dropped. And I dropped three stories and I landed and it's a miracle that I didn't get hurt there. but. I landed and rolled, and then there was um, two canine units right there with the dogs barking in my face. Um, I, and I remember laying there, and I could feel the heat from the dogs. And I'm just like, <laughs> these dogs uh, don't bite me. But that was it. And um, an officer stuck his knee in my back and cuffed me. And um, they put me in the back of the cop car. And the craziest thing is I remember the relief that I had as I sat in the back of that cop car because I knew it was all over. I remember Rihanna's... Um, umbrella song was on in the cop car as we were heading you know to county jail i just had a sense of peace for whatever reason and um and i I ended up getting into um county jail where i would find out um, that i was facing 384 years in prison and um with facing that much time i started to to get involved in with some some rough groups in, in the jail thinking that i'm going away to prison for the rest of my life I have to make a name for myself. I have to be tough. I have to be this this guy, this prison guy. So I get into a bunch of fights. Um, you know, I'm going up to these older kind of gangster guys, and they're saying, "Well, I need you to go beat this guy up, and I need you to go beat that guy up." So I'm doing these things, and I eventually end up in administrative segregation, uh, which is when you are in a concrete cell. Um, it's about eight foot by twelve foot, 
And there's a bunk in there. There's a metal bunk with a fire retardant mattress and a fire retardant pillow and a sink that is attached to a toilet. It's a one piece toilet sink and a desk. And that's it. That's all you have in there. And I was in there for 23 hours a day and I would get one hour where I could go make a phone call, take a shower and I would go back in my cell. And I was there for several months. And in that time frame that I was in administrative segregation, I had um, a revelation. It was one of the, it was an epiphany. It was an aha moment. Um, uh, and it was, and it, and it seems silly, but it, it was, it was, it was huge. Um, and I, and as I look back on it, it's the point as I try and counsel people who have been through these things before or that are going through these things now, and because people come to me because I've been through them before, they ask me, you know, what would you tell them? And this was the one thing that happened, and I'm sitting in administrative segregation um, in this in this cell by myself, been there for a couple months, and all of a sudden I realized, this is my fault. This is all my fault. And I know that seems silly, or it sounds, you know, stupid or whatever, but really, no, this is all my fault, because up to that point, I blamed it on my mom, I blamed it on my dad. I blamed it on the judges. I blamed it on um, basically um, everyone but me. I blamed it on corrupt system, you know, all the district attorneys. I mean, you name it. I blamed everybody. But then all of a sudden I realized this is my fault. And it was so liberating and it was so freeing because I realized if my choices created this circumstances, Certainly, I could make better choices that would create better circumstances. And I, and, I, and I came to this realization that my choices are what create my circumstances, not the other way around. I wasn't a victim that I'd created these circumstances through my choices. And from that moment forward, I made a decision that I was going to do things differently. And I did. And it wasn't easy. Uh, I had habits. I had, you know, thought patterns. I had all these things that were wrong. But I knew that I could make better choices and I was responsible for my choices. And I, and I started doing that from that moment. Um, I got on the phone, I called my grandma with tears in my eyes, um, and told her that, that I was going away forever. And, and she said, you know, I can tell there's been a huge change in your life, Brian. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is, but I can tell there's something very different about you. Um, because up to this point, they all cut me off. I burned every bridge in my family. They were done with me. She said, we're going to get you an attorney. And, um, she did. And the next day I, I went to court, um, someone that was supposed to show up to the court court date to be a witness in my trial. If I went to trial that day, didn't show up. So they had to postpone it for two weeks. Total miracle. The attorney was able to take my case and get me into what's called a mediation hearing. And what a mediation hearing is, is where you basically go into arbitration with your sentence. And it's like a used car sales. Well, I'll give you this. Well, no, we want that. Well, I'll give you this. And no, we want that. And they started at 32 years and I started at eight years and a mediator went back and forth between the district attorney and my lawyer and I back and forth, back and forth. And they finally came down to a 15 year sentence with a crime of violence sentence enhancer. And I told them, I don't, um, I, I, I don't want that sentence enhancer. I don't want to be labeled a violent criminal. I don't want to go to some, you know, hardcore prison and end up with swastikas all over my face and turn into that guy. I want to change my life. I want a chance at changing my life. I said, tell her I'll give her a year if she drops that crime of violence. So I ended up getting sent sentenced to 16 years and they dropped the crime of violence. Um, and I went back to my cell after that mediation and I knew that God had moved in my life. So, um, I went from there, um, 
I got sentenced. I got sentenced to 16 years, and then I went to the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. This is a maximum security prison, and you roll up in a van, and there's rolls upon rolls of razor wire. There's gun towers with armed guards in the gun towers. Um, they've got um, these little mirrors that go under the vans that see if there's bombs under the vans. And it's just, it was very sobering. It was very real that, hey, I, I'm in prison. Um, that's happening now. Um, and I went in there and I was there for a little while and they sent me to my first um, first facility in Werfano County Correctional Center. It was Walsenburg, Colorado. And it was uh, a private prison. Um, and there's a lot of um, bad things that, that surround the idea of private prisons, but I had nothing but a very positive experience there. Um, it was very evident that everybody there um, that was involved with the staff members there from our case managers to the teachers and things like that, um, that they wanted criminals to, to be rehabilitated and they had a lot of programs. So um, I immediately started taking programs. I got my GED um, while I was at Walsenburg and then I started taking college classes and then I became uh, a guy that helped other guys get their GED. Um, and that's what I did for work in there as I was a tutor and I helped people get their GEDs. And when we come back... The final installment of this remarkable story, one that hits close to home, our own Brian Dawson. His story continues here on Our American Stories. to Brian Dawson's story and what a story it is. And again, this one hits close to home. He's one of our people. And by the way, it just shows you that anything can happen in a person's life. Here he is in prison, and he's already, you can hear it, he's a changed guy, and he wants to just get through this and come out on the other side. And so he's reoriented himself and his life right there in what may be the very worst place in America to be as a young man. Let's return to Brian's story. I was there for about nine months, but the very first person I met when I walked into Walsenburg was a guy by the name of Charles Frederick. And he comes up to me, he's this big guy, big burly guy. And he says, hey, my name's Charles and I'm a Christian and this is a faith pod. So in these prisons, they had these um, pods, they're called faith pods. And it was basically pods or units made up of about 120 inmates and it was dedicated to discipleship. And I don't know how I landed in there, why I landed in there. Um, but I was there, and Charles began to just tell me about Christ, tell me about who Jesus was, tell me about the gospel. I told him, Charles, I don't want to hear that stuff. You know, um, I don't care. Um, and, you know, he, he just said, okay. And then we, he began to talk to me about other things. And he met my physical needs. He gave me coffee. He gave me shorts. He gave me, you know, things that, you know, you get in there, you got nothing other than a couple pairs of underwear and, and a green suit. So he helped me um, with some of those things and just became my friend. And, and as conversation would permit, he would tell me about Christ. And that would go on for about nine months. He got shipped to another prison. Um, I left that prison. They shut that prison down. Um, and my security level dropped. And I bounced around a little bit for a couple of years. And then I ended up in Sterling Correctional Facility in Sterling, Colorado. The first person I see 
there's Charles again. And he starts telling me about Jesus Christ again. And um, I'm like, man, I don't want to hear this stuff. Well, um, we're there for a little bit. And he goes, hey, you know, you got parole coming up in a couple of years. It would be good for you to have some certificates um, to, um, you know, show the parole board. I'm like, okay. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm the chaplain's assistant. I can get you in some programs. I'm like, okay, yeah, go ahead. Sign me up. So, um, he signs me up and, uh, they end up being faith-based programs. And I'm like, oh, I hate you, Charles. But the very first program I went into was a, um, uh, come as you are. We love everybody, you know, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, whatever, just come as you are. And I went there and it was, it was okay, but I experienced fellowship and I met other Christians that were like Charles who are true, genuine Christians who lived this out. Um, they didn't just say they were Christians with their mouth. They lived it. And, and you could see the wisdom and things that they had. And I was, I was attracted to that. And, um, that went on for about 13 weeks. That class was over. And then Charles got me into another program called the truth project, um, which is put out by focus on the family and, and Dr. Del Tackett, amazing program. But when I got in there, it was not come as you are. It was, this is what the Bible says. Um, and I didn't like that. And I would sit, we would watch a video for an hour, and then we would have table discussion. And at the table discussion, I would argue with everyone there and tell them how stupid they were for believing what they, you know, th that they believe these things. And I almost got into a couple of fights with those guys. And um, about three weeks into it, we were walking back to the unit, and Charles just asked me, he says, Brian, why don't you just give him a chance? And I'd been asked that question before and, 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 and fought it and fought it and fought it. And for whatever reason, I said, okay, Charles. So, um, I went back to my cell that night and, um, I prayed, okay, God, if I need to believe these things to have a relationship with you, give me some kind of a sign. And I went to bed that night and I remember being in a really deep sleep and I had a nightmare. And in that nightmare, I fell off of a cliff and I woke up startled out of a nightmare and kind of, <gasps> and I looked and, um, it's really dark in the cells and we had, we're allowed to have digital clocks in there. And, and the digital clock with the red numbers in the cell said three, sixteen. The only Bible verse I'd ever known as a kid, um, at all was John three sixteen. And if you know, John three sixteen, it answers the question that I asked him. That's exactly right. Yes, you do need to believe those things. And I tried to go back to sleep and just brush it off. But I, I, I looked back at the clock and I felt like it was 316 for like 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, maybe there's something to this. And uh, it was a Sunday morning at 316. So I got up and, and I went to uh, went to the church services that they offered in the prison. And um, I went and found my friend Ramon. I always had this idea in my head that Christians were weak. And my friend Ramon was a big black um, former gangbanger that had become a Christian. And there was nothing soft or weak about this guy. So I'm like, okay, I'll go with him. And I'm sitting in the very back row in the very far side as he goes through the sermon. And at the end of the sermon, um, the pastor does what he calls an invitation. I look at Ramon and I say, what's an invitation? And he goes, uh, he didn't say, oh, that's where you go make a decision for Christ or you invite Jesus in your heart. He didn't say any of that stuff. He said, if you've got something in your life that's hindering your relationship with God, you can go up there and pray with that man about it. So I went up there and... Um, I prayed with uh, Chaplain Davis, and to, to tell you a little about him, he's a um, a hard man, a calloused man, a cowboy. He's a man's man. He's a prison chaplain, and he doesn't do hugs. He doesn't do any of those kind of things, and, and he grabbed my, my hand to pray, and I could feel the calluses on his hands, and he slaps me on the shoulder with his other hand, and he says, how can I pray for you? And I told him, I said, look, you know, I don't, I'm not here to make any decisions. I just... I need you to pray that God would remove this callus from my heart because it's hardened and it's angry and it's angry towards Christians. So I, I want him to 
soften my heart so that the truth can come in. And Chaplain Davis prayed that. And I remember looking up after we were done praying and he's in front of 130 inmates with tears pouring down his face. And um, I knew something was very real about this and I didn't know how to describe it, but it was, it was, it was very real. <clears throat> and I would later find out that Chaplain Davis and Charles had been praying for me for about a year and a half um, that I would get saved. And from that moment forward, I began to read my Bible. Uh, I read my Bible every single day. I'd get up and read my Bible, read my Bible. I was at every single church service that they offered, any faith-based program they had. In that prison, I was there. There was a huge change. I went from telling these people they were stupid for believing what they did to absolutely believing it, basically overnight, and, and, and following that up um, with my behavior, following the change of heart that I had. Uh, that went on for about a year. And uh, my friends all had pen pals that they were writing when they were in prison. So I prayed and said, all right, God, um, I'd like to have a pen pal. And I got on the phone with my mom, and she was running a Facebook page for me. She says, you got a friend request from a girl. I'm like, okay, cool. Who is it? And she goes, do you know a girl named uh, Christina Ewan? I'm like, yeah, I know Christina Ewan. Um why? And she goes, well, she sent you a friend request. She remembered you and that she's been trying to find you for, you know, on and off for the last 10 years. I said, did you tell her I was in prison? Yeah, I told her you were in prison. She doesn't care. She wants to write you. I'm like, well, that's crazy. So I got her address and <clears throat> everything we did, all of our correspondence was based on Christ and what God was doing in our lives. And that was it. And that went on for several months. And um, I just knew that this was, you know, too crazy for it not to be God lining this up for something bigger. But I was scared to death because she's rejected me so many times in the past. And I had to write a letter and I sat down and wrote this letter and said, look, you know, I just, I, I feel like, you know, this, this is kind of something that may be meant to be and that, that, you know, I know it's asking a lot of you, but, um, that, that maybe we could ride this out together and, and get married when I get out type of, um, you know, this is meant for something more. And, um, I get the letter back and I remember hearing it at mail call and seeing that the letter was from Christina knowing that the answer was going to be inside of that envelope. And I opened the envelope and pulled out the letter and began to read it. And in the very first paragraph, she said, Brian, I've been thinking the exact same things. And I know God wants me to be with you and that I'm supposed to be here for you through this time. And that, you know, that we're, we're meant to be together. Um, and I remember reading that sitting in prison. And I mean, I could have floated up the steps to go back to my cell. It was, um, it was amazing. So, um, but I put in for a halfway house about six months after that. So I ended up getting accepted to that program. Um, my very first time putting in for a halfway house, which almost never happens with uh, the severity of my sentence and the size and scope of my sentence. Um, I got out my very first time um, putting in and, um, so it was it was a very very tough two years, but I graduated, um, and uh, Christina was there for the graduation. And the first visit I was allowed to go on, actually before I graduated, um, <clears throat> Christina and I um, got married. We got we eloped, I guess you could say. We got married at my grandma's house, um, and uh, a pastor that used to come to the prisons um, did my my marriage ceremony. So it was him and his wife, and my grandma were the only ones there at the wedding, and my mom was on speakerphone, and <laughs> so. My wife and I now have um, three daughters, plus my stepson, Brennan, who's an absolute stud, um, brilliant, smart kid, um, does very well in sports. My girls are um, three years old, uh, is Gracie, two-year-old is Reagan, and our one-year-old uh, is Abigail, and we have another one on the way. So not only um, do I have, and this is kind of a cool um, caveat to the story. I've got a little piece of property with a, you know, little house, 
um, and, uh, you know, the wife of my dreams and beautiful children, uh, four beautiful children about to be five, but I just moved my mom's, um, she has a camper and I just moved her camper onto my property and my mom, who I had obviously all that resentment and animosity towards, she now lives on my property and she's Mima to the kids and she got saved about two years ago and she's a completely different person. So, um, again, like you, I could not have sat in jail, um, you know, five, six, seven years ago, whatever it was and said, okay, in five or 10 years, this is what I want. Um, and ever thought it would be what it is now. And what a story, folks. And uh, I'm tearing up here because I know Brian. And and to, to imagine that that can happen in people's lives, anyone listening, having someone in prison, someplace that you just don't think they can come back from, my goodness, it's possible. And we do faith-based stories here, folks. We don't shy away from it. There are all kinds of things that can get people out of a jam. And sometimes it's God, and sometimes it's a, it's a secular counselor. Uh, but we don't shy away from the, the religious aspect of people's lives here on this show. We don't preach, we don't proselytize, but we don't remove it. And my goodness, Brian Dawson's story is unimaginable without God. And send your stories, by the way, if you have a story like this, and I know you do, because my goodness, this country is filled with stories like this, and we're, we're tired of the negative stories. We want to hear stories of real hope, not the silly kind, the rugged kind. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Brian Dawson's story, a beautiful family, a beautiful story of love and redemption, here on Our American Stories.